Hey everyone, welcome to Asian Tech Leaders, the podcast where we interview some of the most interesting and inspiring Asian CEOs, entrepreneurs, and thinkers. I'm your host, Justin Pang, and I'm on a mission to share the stories of Asian tech leaders to help guide your personal and professional life. Thanks so much for joining me, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Lakvir Singh Jaj and Tracy Cheng are the co-founders of Moselle, a tech platform that helps small and medium businesses create stable, sustainable, and scalable supply chains. Lakvir and Tracy launched Moselle just a couple months before the pandemic hit in 2020, and they quickly adapted to help SMBs adapt to the surge in e-commerce. In this episode, you'll learn more about how being raised by immigrant parents shaped their worldview and life decisions, how Tracy and Lakvir met and decided to create Moselle, and also how to think about whether moving from a corporate to entrepreneurial environment is a right career move for you. Hope you enjoy this episode, and let's get started. Hi, Tracy. Hi, Lakvir. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing, Justin? Hi, Justin. Hey, thanks for joining the podcast. I'm so excited to have you both on today. And uh, for the record, I've done over 25 interviews so far. You are the first pair of co-founders that I'll be having. So no pressure, but also just (laughs) exciting exciting to have a different dynamic. Um, But yeah, thanks for joining. I think, you know, what I'd love to start with is um, how you both uh, got to meet and got to know each other uh, and started your company, Moselle. Lacker, you want to take it? I want to take it. Uh, you can you can start okay, off. Sure. Um, so early in both our careers, uh, we both landed at a tech company in Toronto called CareGuide. Um, and back then, I was a marketer and Lackbear was a software engineer. And he sat directly behind me. And as I sat down on my first day, he turns to me, he's like, what are you all about? And I thought that was an interesting first question. And most of the engineers I've worked with in the past are not so interested to engage like that. So we hit it off right off the bat and quickly developed a friendship. And not long after, you know, there was a third friend in our group named Natasha. We always talked about starting a company together one day. We thought we learned a lot from our experience working at CareGuide. We saw all the things that were done right and all the things that we thought we could do better in our future company and always talked about this. And you know, years down the line now, uh, we've all kind of grown up a bit and moved on to different things in our career. Natasha has since started her own successful design studio, um, but Blackbear and I still decided to pursue the dream of starting a company together. Uh, Blackbear has since worked with a bunch of uh, VCs to help start co-create some companies uh, in a CTO and uh, product capacity. I've since moved on to business operations and people operations and and now we feel we have all the skill sets we need to create a business together and hopefully make it successful. So here we are today. Very cool. So you met at CareGuide, but then before starting Moselle, you also gathered your own separate set of experiences, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the tipping point in actually um, going full time into Moselle? How, how did that happen? Yeah, I, I can. Add color on that. So I was working at a company called Highline Beta, which is a Toronto-based um, venture capital firm, and they're doing something very unique, where they're kind of coming in at the approach of like combining venture capital and corporate innovation together. So I worked there for two years, um, and they have a venture studio where they're kind of spinning out new interesting ideas. Um, it could be co-mingled in with kind of corporate innovation, but uh, 
I went to the partners with this idea of like helping small to medium-sized businesses with trade and importing. Um, and they're like, that sounds awesome. Go do it. And then I was like, you know, Tracy, how we, we talked about starting a business. Now's the time to do it. And so kind of pushed her over the edge shortly afterwards to, to get started on Moselle. So did you, at what point did you leave your, your previous day jobs to go full-time in Moselle? And like, what level of confidence did you have when you made that move to be like, okay, we're, we're going to do this thing. Let's do it. So the funny part about it is we did it, I think, end of December, 2019. And we had like mixed feelings where we're like, this is the time to do it. There's, there's only sunshine and, and rainbows from 2020 and beyond. And then boom, pandemic hit. And we're like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, now we feel even more weird about this. Yeah. And to add a little more color to that, I was I had left a, uh, a stable bank job to do the Moselle. But uh, to be candid, you know, Blackbird knows me. I live in three startups. And while it was great learning education at corporate banking environment, it ultimately wasn't where I felt I can make the biggest impact. And the large pull where Blackbird really got me on this idea of supporting these small businesses, as we found in our research, that that's the best way to support um Gap, inequality gaps to help start from a local level and grow these businesses of a lot of underrepresented leaders uh, that don't have maybe the same access to the tools and resources they need to grow the business. So primarily we were focused on importing and we found there was a lot of new immigrants in the space because of the language and relationship skills. Um, but over time we've shifted more towards supply chain and still we're able to help these leaders and hopefully make an impact in their communities. Very cool. So for those who aren't that familiar, what is the problem that Moselle is aiming to solve? Yeah. Um, so what we've learned, and maybe this is a good kind of piece that I add about my background as well, is when you know my parents immigrated from India, they started a grocery business in Little India in Toronto. And then the whole family got involved. And, uh, and then we quickly got into wholesaling nuts and dry fruit. Um, and so kind of grew up in that kind of supply chain space. And what, what we know about any business, uh, whether you're online kind of e-commerce business or you're kind of retail business, you're at your, your business starts and stops with your suppliers and manufacturers, right? So if you, you know, for example, Justin, you're getting coffee for your online coffee e-commerce business, you have to like deal with those suppliers and manufacturers. If you don't, kind of work with them, you have no products to sell. Um, so, you know, Moselle is, and so kind of adding to that example, you're also like emailing the supplier, you're sending them orders over email, and then you're like constantly following up with them. And then very quickly, your job becomes emailing and managing spreadsheets and managing relationships with suppliers. And like, you didn't get into your copy DTC brand to do that as a full-time job. So. You know, the problem was very obvious for us. So why does ordering goods have to be this painful? Um, what if we create a command center for a business owner to see everything in one place and do everything in one place? So that's that's Moselle at its heart. Very cool. And is it all, is it a platform? Like, does it actually have um, connections to multiple suppliers and uh, vendors? How, how does it actually help in, in that regard in the matching of vendors and um, business owners yeah so today we don't 
um, help with the matchmaking of suppliers and vendors. So that's kind of the space of sourcing. We, we tell brands to, you know, bring your own suppliers onto the Mozilla platform yeah. and we kind of eliminate the email and spreadsheet hell that you're living in. And we do that in two ways. So we have a software to kind of eliminate the manual data entry and aggregation and kind of build a singular kind of dashboard for your supply chain. And then we have like a digital specialist, a digital D2C operations specialist behind the scenes, handling everything a tool can't or like software can't. So these are things like emailing your supplier to do follow-ups and stuff. And we've kind of built this into a singular platform that is very unique and it helps online brands um, kind of elevate their their supply chain. And I think the unique thing to tie tie it back is when we started this business, what we see a lot is these these founders of these these businesses are very diverse and they have like the language skills to like navigate complex supply chain. So whether they're making their goods in Asia or they're procuring coffee from South America, they are the experts and, and we feel very lucky to work with those kinds of brands that are bringing kind of different pieces of the world to the North American market because that's where we operate. Mm, very cool. And I mean, you, you kind of touched on like the diversity piece. Do you actually have any early data on like how much of the communications on your platform is done in English versus other languages, um, given like it is such a global landscape by nature? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You would think that there's more, um, we see a lot of diversity kind of on the outside, um, but when you think about core business, and kind of the way supply chain operates, it's very um, kind of westernized. So emails, even though you're talking to a supplier in China, emails are in English. Um, purchase orders, the documents that you build to describe what you're ordering is in English and then it gets handled by someone on the other end who obviously speaks English. So like the end-to-end -end kind of business paper trail aspect of it is all very English driven. But the other piece that Moselle kind of helps embrace is this the relationship side of things and the relationship side of things is very important and that lives in like phone calls and whatsapp messages and and it can be in different languages and it's very unique and and we kind of see behind the curtains a little bit of that very cool and tracy you know since i i believe you focus more on like the business side of things how is um, you know, getting the word out, finding new users. Um, what is what has been working, and what are some of the challenges in the space? Because I'm I'm sure you know it, there's a lot of um, challenge in just getting enterprises or entrepreneurs' attention. Yeah, there's luckily no shortage of groups online of uh, small business owners that are looking to either commiserate or find solutions for a lot of the problems they face. So we've kind of embedded ourselves in many of these groups, uh, lots of e-commerce specific, D2C specific, uh, previously a lot of importing, that sort of thing. And uh, these communities are very engaged and very helpful to one another and supportive. So we've learned a lot through them. And when we throw a solution out there, uh, people are pretty quick to jump on top of it and give it a try and then spread the word if it works. So we've been very fortunate to see that uh, kind of network effect. Um, so that's been great. And additionally, uh, getting involved in some specific, like trade-specific groups that uh, or organizations, they've been very helpful as well to connect us to the right people. But generally, word of mouth, everyone knows someone who's trying D2C right now. So that's been the greatest way to get our early customers. 
Right, right. And like such incredible timing to start this, like you said, by hook or by crook, like happening during the pandemic when e-commerce took off. So yeah, I, I believe you guys started this around like Jan 2020, December 2019. Yeah. Oh, how were like the first few months versus like the last year or so? Um, and did you, was there a clear um, transformation in your business and like what problems you were solving? pre and post pandemic. Yeah, it's it was very interesting that process. Um, so if we, if we think about like pre pandemic, we had all this research and we did all this kind of user research and taking a very design centric approach of like how, how to start this business. And we had a really good idea of what to do. And then the pandemic hit and then we like all our pretty much all of our research went out the window. But then at the same time, like no, no one had a clue what was going on in the world. So it was like impossible to be like talking to business owners, business owners like, I don't know, I don't even know if I'm gonna be around in a couple months, so see you later. And so in that time, leveraging our research and kind of paying attention to what was happening in the world, we kind of built the first MVP of Moselle. And then pretty much after the first wave, I mean, got kind of middle of second wave, people just kind of lived with the pandemic and COVID that uh, we started connecting back with businesses. And that's when we started seeing some new patterns emerge where businesses wanted to go really quickly as fast as possible, shifting either their, their business online or operations online, trying to figure out how to communicate with their team and they've never utilized technology. And then there was, like a sprout of people at home trying to figure out what to do with their time. And like, I should start an e-commerce business. And, you know, there's tons of data out there of like the uptick in Shopify stores created and like, and during the pandemic. So we got to kind of ride that wave a little bit and iterate on our product till now where we've seen a lot of like gravitation towards the Moselle platform and a lot of businesses that started the pandemic didn't really understand the operational hurdles of like managing your supplier and manufacturer. Now they totally get it. Now they're like six months in, they're like, oh, I need help on the on this stuff. So the timing was was is kind of perfect, but at the same time, very chaotic and very stressful. Cause like that first wave was like, oh my God, like like what's what's gonna happen with Moselle? So no, it's it's crazy, right? Because like yeah. everybody, whether it's your personal life, professional, like business plans, they all kind of went out the window once uh, March and April hit, right? So I feel like for me personally, it's such a good lesson of it's good to have plans, but you know there could always be something that upends it, and it's it's great to hear that um, you found opportunity in that in a way to to help meaningfully um, to these companies who are just trying to get off the ground. Yeah. Um, I would love to kind of switch gears a little bit and look here, you, you talked about a little, a little bit about your family upbringing and um, having a, a store in Toronto. Um, would love to hear a little bit more about both of your upbringings and childhoods. What were they like? And especially being, um, you know, children of immigrants, but being raised in Canada, would, would love to know one or two memorable stories of like, um, what your childhood was like. Yeah, I mean, uh, I grew up in Unionville, which is a small area within Markham. And it was a very interesting time because it was a big shift in the demographic in this area. Um, I 
our family arrived in Unionville probably around 94, 95, and that's when a lot of Hong Kong immigrants were arriving pre-handover of 1997. So um, suddenly this primarily, you know, uh, middle-class white neighborhood was now filling with more uh, Asian immigrants. And you could, at the time, like when I was younger, I didn't really sense it, but as I was getting older, you could kind of feel some racial tension. Um, but what was great about growing up in this area that had a lot of uh, fellow Chinese kids growing up is, there was no shortage of Chinese food. There was no shortage of opportunities to embrace culture. I could go to Chinese school on Saturdays. And in hindsight, I now realize I'm lucky. Then I was probably like, oh, why do I have to do an extra day of school? But there was an opportunity to even embrace my language in such like a structured way that is incredible now that I think about it. Um, and you know, I, I talked to more of my peers who grew up in like very suburban or very, very, very like far out rural areas in Canada and they were the only one. So, and now I recognize that, but then probably not so much. And I think um, at the time, as I got older and I sensed the racial tension, I thought that assimilation was kind of like the only way to survive. So uh, as yeah. I got older, I kind of like pushed back against my Asian culture and kind of disconnected. Um, now I kind of, and now I recognize how that was hurtful for my family. Uh, but then that's what I thought I needed to do to make it. Um, so that that was an interesting experience that I think a lot of kids that come out of Unionville also experienced. Um, but generally, you know, happy family. A little bit of difference with the neighbors. I think we were uh, on our street. It was like Asian and then white, white, white Asian. And our families like did not take care of their cars. That was not something they cared about. All our white neighbors were always cleaning the car. The appearance of their home was important. <laughs> Meanwhile, my immigrant parents are like, "Look, we just walked worked a long shift. We don't have time to take care of the house and that sort of thing." So it was a little interesting of a different dynamic. And you know, sometimes neighbors are like, "Could you guys cut the lawn?" <laughs> and my dad's like, "Yes, we'll do it." But that's like low priority compared to everything else we're trying to tackle <laughs> exactly. in our settlement in Canada. <laughs> yeah, wow, amazing. And Lafayette, what was your uh, upbringing and childhood like? Yeah, it's uh, very fortunate, like when I always think back in uh, retrospective, but uh, very interesting in the sense that like we had that that store, right? So we had, you know, we had the family business and everything kind of revolved around it. So it was a bit of like a vortex and so, very quickly, you know, you apply the same kind of Asian immigrant rules, can't stay at friend's house after school, that's a big no-no, and you can definitely never sleep over. But on top of that, it was like, you can't do that, come come home, maybe if you, you know, I absolutely hated homework. So I'd say, oh, I've done my homework. And then my parents would be like, all right, great. Now, like, you can go work in the store. So, so we, <laughs> we would spend, me and my siblings would spend an immense amount of time just working in the store, whether it was like being on the cashier or inputting stuff into our store computer system or um, helping my dad in, in, in like the, the shipping and receiving area. So yeah, that was kind of my upbringing it, and also kind of unique as well, where um, in Gerard Street in Little India, that's where the, the, the store was located. Um, the Indian community started shrinking and started growing out in like Brampton, Mississauga versus like one of the first original Indian communities was on that street. But growing up in the 90s, it started shrinking. And then um, as a, you know, sick turban wearing kid, um, especially around the 2000s, it was a very awkward time for that that community as well, because, you know, we had 9-11 and, and, and then my parents were definitely more 
cautious about you know who we hung out with and all this, the craziness in the world so i like now when i think back of it it's like man the world was crazier on that time when i was a kid wearing a turban and my parents were probably like as a parent you're probably like freaking out and so um that was kind of the interesting upbringing uh, growing up on gerard street mm. in toronto mm. and how did each of your upbringings kind of influence what you wanted to study in university or what you even wanted to do for your career Tracy, yeah. Do you yeah, I think, you know, as I grew into my teenage years, I became more rebellious. And I think I, as I mentioned, I tried to distance myself from things that made me Asian. And I stupidly was just like, you know, math and science, that's what my parents want. So I'm going to do the opposite. So in my rebellious streak, I really embraced the arts. I kicked ass at English, you know, philosophy, psychology, that sort of thing. And now I'm kind of like, oh, that's stupid. That would have been really helpful, some <laughs> of the skills. Uh, but, Our you know, parents said, were right. We just don't want to tell them. Damn it. <laughs> don't let them hear this podcast. But they Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, so there was definitely rebellion that kind of led that direction of how I ended up in the arts, but ultimately I still ended up in business. So math is still a big daily part of my day to day and it's functional enough, my skills to get Moselle up and running and alive. So <laughs> Right. And I mean, the same with like my upbringing, my parents, they put us in Chinese school Saturday, yep. Japanese school on Sunday. So we were in school seven days a week but at the time hated it is and I didn't even know better right like I didn't I didn't know kids didn't go to school on the weekend because <laughs> that was normal exactly. uh, but now in hindsight I'm like I mean now I want to do that to my kids because I'm like I'm glad I at least have this foundational knowledge of like my mother tongue so our parents are right we just don't <laughs> want to admit it or believe it at the moment exactly. and like Vera, how, how is your like kind of upbringing uh and how did that influence your career and school choices yeah, like like I said, it everything kind of revolved around the grocery store. So like when I come home from school, maybe I'd slip an episode of like Star Trek in and then get started with my dad in the store. And I would actually yeah. find the work that was most interesting was um, anything like technical. So we had, mm. um, as a store grew, we had like a point of sale system. So I used to tinker around with the computers and like troubleshoot them. and. Uh, we had air conditioning units for like the, the frozen section of the store and and we like I'd tinker around and try to fix it and and stuff like that as as a kid growing up and helping helping my my father. And so um, I've always had this um, desire to work in something tech related. Um, it also helps that I had an older brother who was doing computer science degree around that time as well. So it was like naturally, I wanted to play around and tinker with anything mechanical or computer related. Very cool. And um, I mean, this is a kind of a, a question at the intersection of identity, but also like career development. Do you feel that there are any specific skills or like attributes that minority groups, whether it's, you know, being Asian or immigrants should invest more in um, if they want to um, set themselves up? Self, set themselves up for um, success? Yeah, particularly in the sphere of business, I think, um, I can't speak for all Asian cultures, but specifically in Chinese households, um, humbleness is really important. And we really believe in showing your worth in your merit and your hard work. 
Um, but you know, as you are in the workplace, you kind of realize often that the people with the loudest versus voices are heard, not necessarily the people that work the hardest. So being able to advocate for yourself and not being afraid to take up a little space is something I would definitely recommend. It's something that has been kind of tough uh, for me to figure out, especially when you're pitching to VCs to make yourself seem bigger than maybe where you are. Because, um, you know, initially when Lacquer and I first started, we were like, our proof is in the pudding, you know, our hard work will show, but that's not enough. We have to be able to amplify our work so people know about it. Uh, my dad had also pointed this out as something that was tough for him when he first came to Canada, when he was interviewing. He said, it's very weird that you have to talk yourself up so much before you even have an opportunity to prove yourself. Right. Yeah, such an interesting observation too, and I I felt that too. And I do feel like earlier in one's career, you can get by with just doing the hard work, right? The mm -hmm. the work and the output kind of speaks for itself. But I think especially in different levels or you know different work environments like entrepreneurial ones, um, the communication makes a a big difference. How how did you hone that skill? And was there were there any seminal experiences or like moments in your career where you were like, oh, something's got to change, or has it more so been uh, gradual. Yeah, so I have a, I had a huge fear of public speaking. I remember in ninth grade French class, my teacher was like, "You should definitely take drama or something because your your public speaking skills are real bad." But also, it was in French, so it was extra hard then. So. <laughs> I didn't take it seriously until much later on, and it was probably in recent years in my career. You know, I had studied communications and done PR, and while I could help other people hone their craft in speaking, I myself still could was rough around the edges. So I really took it upon uh, myself to try to do more speaking engagements uh, and put myself out there. And sure enough, a lot of it is practice. It is a skill that you have to hone. Um, I think we perceive a lot of public speakers as like naturals at it, but they put a lot of work behind the scenes to get to where they are. So that's what I'm, I've been, I'm still working on it. Cool. And being the, being on the podcast is maybe part of that, but you're doing a great job. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Lakvir, any, um, any skills that you think uh, folks should be thinking about more or, or working on, um, especially those earlier in their career? Yeah, I, I think this, the way I think about it is really kind of tailored for the younger version of myself, which is like trying to connect dots with the personality and culture that you have and find unique intersections. So I, I find that like minorities have like a wealth of talents that, you know, they they know, but they don't, you know, actively try to to exploit um, and then carry it into different th fields or different uh, train of thoughts and to kind of build this like, because they, they would have this very unique knowledge and experiences. Um, so I'll give you a really tangible example. So like if you have like the land, like the language skills to speak Mandarin or Hindi or Punjabi, you can navigate an untapped market that most people can't like like that's a really tangible example that we even see with within Moselle or your type A personality, uh, but you challenge yourself to you know exploit that into something that's a little bit more creative like writing or arts. So I find that people who who find those unique intersections are much they find them much later in their their lives if if you come from an Asian background. And then they they have this unique knowledge and experiences that make them irreplaceable, whether they're colleagues, friends, or investors. And so, like finding those intersections earlier, like you know who you are as as an Asian immigrant um, or uh, come from an Asian background, and then find 
unique intersections, whether it's business, technology, software, whatever it might be. Hmm. Great advice. And even as you're thinking about, you know, building out your team, how do you um, think about diversity and just like making sure that um, you're bringing not just the right skills for the job, but it's actually creating the right portfolio of skills and experience for the broader team? Yeah, I think it's uh, Lakmir and I are pretty candid about the areas that are our strengths and the areas that are our weaknesses. Um, so we have a good idea of the skills needed to complement us um, beyond just like the job description. Um, and in terms of the diversity and inclusion part, I think a lot of the times the way that we've hired, like as a whole tech industry, is based solely on experience, but that assumes everyone has had the same access to the same opportunities to build that experience. So beyond mm -hmm. experience, I think it's important to look at the potential of candidates. And I, uh, both Blackbear and I are in the same philosophy of finding those diamonds in the roughs. There's lots of people that have these stories that might not translate into that exact degree that you have in mind, but they can bring lots of great value to the table, but just maybe people haven't taken the time to delve in with them. Um, of course, you know, there are still expectations that have to be met, but we believe that in order to expect employees to stay with us, we have to equally invest time into them to build them into the employees that we hope they can grow into and become leaders at our company. Hmm. And do you have any favorite slash killer interview questions that you find like helps differentiate folks? And again, if you don't want to um, share all this, that's okay, but thought I would ask. Left here, you go first. <laughs> Uh, for me, it's like, I don't know if there's a particular question, um, but I'm always thinking about it in, in terms of like investment, like you're an organization, you're going to invest, what you should be doing is investing in individuals, right? And so if you're going to invest in this person is like, try to think and work with that person and, and the questions that you ask of like, can you both in a conversation or interview find out where you think together we can project to be in you know x amount of time whether it's like four years or two years and hit career objectives but business objectives so like i always ask around questions of like you know what are the goals you're trying to hit what are you like trying to learn if you're a software engineer and then you know we're trying to work on this stuff here at moselle is that of interest to you and like try to suss up those things early because it's an investment on both people's time and energy. And so if you can find that out and kind of tease it out early, then you're going to have a much more impactful relationship. Um, and that's the way I kind of view it. Yeah, for me, I think a lot of startups are really obsessed with finding a cultural fit. Um, I don't necessarily think that helps to promote a good diverse team. Otherwise you end up with too many like-minded folks. And I honestly mm. believe that culture over time changes. I had a former boss tell me this culture changes, but values remain stagnant and the foundation. So I think um, beyond, you know, again, the role, uh, finding employees with similar shared values, that's what will really carry a team that can scale and grow in the long term. Very cool. And, you know, Tracy, I had a question for you, given that you have worked in larger corporate settings. You mentioned you worked at a large bank before, uh, but you've obviously worked in uh, entrepreneurial environments. For somebody who has been working in more of a corporate setting, how do you advise them to think about whether or not, you know, making the leap to a smaller company is right for them? And obviously it varies by individual what they need, but yeah. any, any guidance or things that you suggest folks think about yeah. when making that decision? I think a lot of um, the corporate environment 
has a lot more structure. So for someone that's looking to leave a corporate environment, they have to be prepared for a bit more craziness on their day to day. They might not have that structure. They might not have the uh, directives that they're used to. There's a lot more opportunity to take initiative. Um, a lot of people that say that they're keen to take initiative in a corporate environment when they're thrown into a startup environment, it may be a little more initiative than they had hoped. But um, when they feel empowered in a startup environment and recognize that like, oh, you actually have the autonomy to do what you want. I think they can quickly pick it up, but it can be a little bit of a culture shock in, um, right off the bat. So that's something to prepare for. Mm. Mm. And in a startup environment, like you are alluding to, you have to wear many hats, right? And I would imagine there's no such thing as really having a day off because this is probably very all consuming, at least more so than a typical nine to five job. Um, so curious to know, how do you, how do each of you manage your energy levels? Because um, I feel like energy management is such a crucial part of uh, ensuring that you're giving your best to Moselle's success, but also that you can do that over a sustained amount of time. So curious to know, how, how do you each personally manage your energy um, to make sure you have like optimal performance? Blackbeard, yeah, yeah, I can go first. Yeah, so I, I think for me, it's tying into kind of our biology and like the way we're programmed with our circadian clock. And like, I'm a huge nerd, so I read a bunch of like health papers to like try to ex kind of exploit this. Where I think my golden rule is like try to end your day off at like six, seven p.m. Um, latest. Right? If you can do it sooner, then better, um, because you're gonna have to eat dinner. You have family, a partner that you're going to have to spend time with, you know, um, especially if you have children, you know, homework time. Um, and then, um, and then if you need more time, get up earlier, like sunset is like 6am, especially in the summertime. And like, you can start off your day, have your coffee there, and then you can find more time in the day. What, what I end up seeing is a lot of founders, they kind of flip it where they're, they're, they have low energy, they force themselves to work to like, midnight um and then start off the day a little bit later but then zero energy um and i don't i don't know why people do that you're fighting your own biology so i'm i'm a morning person so is I, it is a stereotype of a engineer coder being a night owl off is that like a is that a I, misnomer <laughs> i used to do that a lot like i used and then i just found as i gotten older my like my body can't do it anymore so i like i get up insanely early if i need I need the time and start my day yeah. off like that. And then I finish off at six and like, okay, put away everything, spend time with my partner, you know, go for a walk. It's like downtime essentially. Yeah, that's great. And Tracy? I am definitely a night owl, so I don't listen to life. He gives me all this great <laughs> biological tips about how I could be better. And I, I don't know why, um, but I, I to, I've, I've identified a couple activities that uh, give me energy that I have to do every day, and that helps to balance things. Whether it be like the long walk, um, getting a workout in, reading, uh, learning Spanish, there has to be some things that aren't work that give me joy, and I have to do them. Otherwise, I, my focus on work won't be entirely there. So sometimes I flip my day a little bit, and I'll do some of these things like throughout the day, like an activity here, a break here, here, and here. And then maybe I have to work a little bit later, but that's okay for me. It's kind of like built into my day. I could probably structure it better. I'm working with Lacquer on it, um, but certainly uh, building other things that spark you joy outside of work is important. <laughs> yeah. Just no emails or Slack messages to Lacquer after 6 p.m. 
Yes. <laughs> the fun and, and then Tracy, nothing at 6 a.m. So like yes. there's, this, there's this like Venn diagram of like yeah, yeah. Being last year and like everyone else is like, oh, okay, we, we got them at their peak time now. Yeah. Yeah. That's when you do your deep work, right? When the other person's like offline. Um, and then last two questions, any advice that you would give to your younger self? Um, and you might've touched on it in one of my earlier questions, but um, like asking that question just for good measure. Yeah, I think um, a lot of the ways that we perceive career paths is a very linear journey. You accomplish A for X amount of years, then you move up to the next role and you keep climbing until you get to whatever that goal is. Um, and for me, I think, when I left school, I was very lost. I'm like, what the hell do I do with an arts degree? And specifically, I had a degree in media, information, and technoculture. So I didn't know what to do. And I looked around, saw my parents, peers were doing public relations or marketing. So I put myself in that role, but I quickly learned that's not what I love to do. Um, and I think most of my career has been more like Goldilocks of figuring out what I don't like and getting to what I do love, which is operations, took a while. And it took a lot of a deviation, uh, lots of, uh, wrong turn, not wrong turns, maybe extra long scenic routes to get to where I am. I tried things like sales, I tried full marketing, I tried customer service, and with each thing that I learned that I didn't love, I kind of figured out a way to better holistically understand a business as a whole, which probably is what makes me good at operations now. So if I could give advice back to myself, it's just remember the journey is not always straight and smooth, and it's okay to take different turns and try different things to get to what you love. Great advice. I, I feel like that has been the case for me as well, which is like experimentation and like ultimately answering the question of like know thyself because I feel like for the first 20 years of uh, most of our lives and careers, we're just focused on being good students, which is very, very different from like figuring out what you want to do for your full-time engagement at, at work. So um, definitely like and, and agree with that advice. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I think this is like more tap tapping into kind of our Asian DNA, um, where we're taught, you know, consistency and discipline versus like in like especially in like the tech world, we're taught the opposite, like chaos and move fast and, and stuff. Where I'm actually coming back to consistency and discipline, where like startup life work life relationships is a marathon it's not a sprint race so yeah. i don't know why like when i was younger i was like i'm gonna like program a hackathon and you know two days and build an mvp versus like if you just gave yourself good like b plus days from like monday to friday and enjoyed your weekend you would mm -hmm. probably have been just as productive if you just burnt out monday friday or sorry monday tuesday and then like you're not focused wednesday to, like friday so kind of going back to, you know, that that DNA culture of like consistency, discipline, and like kind of force yourself to, to be consistent. And that knowing that it's a marathon, a lot of people forget it's a marathon and then they're like yeah, yeah. Out after a year or so. Totally, yeah, that, that resonates with me as well because um, it's very easy, as, I think, thinking as a student to cram, right? That's what I did to study. Okay, yeah. now I have an exam midterm. Um, just give me that minus five days. I'm going to lock myself up in the library and I'll, I'll do fine. Versus this idea of like compound interest, which is like little drips at a time done over time will snowball into, you know, much more impact. And also to your point, like durability in the long run.
But I don't think I got that until like maybe a few years ago. Okay. Yeah. It's like when I was a student, I'm like, cramming works for me. I mean, look at my grades. But yeah. work and like just overall life is so different from academia. So but the, that's the great insight. But the funny thing is, is you crammed as a student, but your parents were the most consistent, disciplined people that you know. So it's it's always it's always yeah. been in your life. You just you kind of forget about it and get it introduce it much later in your life. Yeah. So the the TLDR of this is our parents were right. So <laughs> um, just listen to your mom and dad. And this is also me speaking to my kids if they ever listen to this. <laughs> listen to me. I'm I'm right. Saturday <laughs> um, school. Sunday school. Exactly. Saturday and Sunday school, no time <laughs> off. And then um, for folks who want to find you or get connected with you on the internet, what's the best place for them to find each of you? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn or you can go to my about.me slash Tracy Chang and uh, you can reach me there as well. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, you can reach me at um, Lucky and then my last name. I've been graced by my parents with a very unique name. So if you look up Black Fear on Google, you'll find you'll find me really quickly. But the best place, place to connect is on uh, either Twitter or LinkedIn. So you're the number one search result in Google just with your yeah. first name? Yeah, if you just do Black Fear on Google. Wow, ultimate SEO. That's like genius. <laughs> your parent, See, your parents were right. <laughs> Tracy and Black Fear, thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. and. Um, Wishing you both all the best. Check out moselle.io for folks who are interested in the company. And obviously, as uh, job postings become available, too, um, keep an eye out for that. Um, so we'll wrap it up today, but really appreciate your time and, and feedback and advice. Thank you so much, Justin. Thank, thank you, Justin. Thanks, guys. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Asian Tech Leaders. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with your family and friends, leave me a review on iTunes, or drop me a note on our website, asiantechleaders.com. I really appreciate having each of you as a listener and sharing your valuable time with me. Be well, stay healthy, and follow your heart. See you soon.